end the, the end of the year is hastening. It's coming soon. So last week we started a series on the attitude of gratitude, the idea of what we have to be thankful for as Christians. So last week we talked about thankfulness in worship. Today we're going to jump right into the difficult stuff. We're going to talk about thankfulness in hard times, how to be thankful in difficult times. And uh, before we read the passage, I just want to just, uh, you know, really dig into this idea of what is a hard time, right? What is, what is a difficult time? What are we facing? When it talks about trials and tribulations, what is it that we're facing? And, and I thought back in my own life, and, and I can remember back to, I think it was probably 2009, probably the hardest year of my life, uh, probably the most difficult year of my life. Uh, and, and I'll make a disclaimer, since that time, since 2009, I have watched my dad go through cancer and, and eventually pass away. Since 2009, I have seen my mom go through leukemia treatments for the past three or four years now. Uh, in that time, I have lost jobs for no good reason. I have had people stab me in the back. I've had difficult things happen. Really, more difficult things happen than what happened back in 2009. And so I sat and I thought, well, what in the world made 2009 so hard? And as I reflected back, it had been a difficult year. You know, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an example of what was going on. I, I had, um, my wife and I had just gotten married in 2008, and we both quit our Fortune 500 uh, jobs to go and serve in a church, to go and volunteer and serve in a church in Panama City. My dad was the pastor. Uh, I had a hard time finding work. I worked as a night auditor. If you've ever done overnight work, that's enough to depress anybody. Overnight work is so hard. You get up, everybody else is waking up, and you're going to sleep. And that was, that was what I was doing. I was, I was a night auditor. Then my dad came down with cellulitis. If you don't know what that is, an infection in the skin of his legs. He was in the hospital uh, from basically Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's of that year. Um, and what, what made that year difficult, though, was not the circumstances. What made that year difficult was my response to those circumstances. And it wasn't that I got mad. I didn't quit coming to church. I didn't quit serving. I didn't quit living the way I was supposed to live. But what I did was I numbed myself to all of that. If anyone asked me, I didn't want to talk about who was sick. I didn't want to talk about anything that was going on. I just wanted to internalize it and take it on myself and just keep on going, which was okay for a while until I eventually just, just cracked under the pressure. I couldn't handle it anymore. And I can remember like it was yesterday, taking a group of teenagers to youth camp and I'm the one crying at the altar on the last day. And they're all like, what is wrong? Are we ever going to get home? Why did we travel cross country with this crazy guy? We're in North Carolina. Home is Panama City. How are we getting back to where we're supposed to go? But what had happened was I had, I had spent all this time, and God had been trying to teach me things, and God had been trying to grow me. And rather than submitting to his will, I really in my own way fought against it. I pretended everything was okay. I pretended nothing needed to be changed. I pretended that uh, none of it hurt, and I was beyond it, and I was Superman, and I could handle it all. Well, the problem with all that is I was not growing the way that God intended for me to grow. And the result of that was that it caused me to realize how broken I really was and how insufficient I really was and how hopeless I really was without Jesus Christ. And so this morning, thinking about that, I want us to look at James chapter 1. I want to spend some time looking at James chapter 1, because the truth of the matter is this, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the truth of the matter is you're going to face hard times. 
right? There's going to be financial difficulty. There's going to be family difficulties. There's going to be health difficulties. Our, our country is in peril. Our world is in peril. Things are going to be difficult because we're humans, because it's life. That's the way it is. But I want to encourage you through James chapter 1 that as Christians, we can have a different outlook. So let's jump in. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 2 through 4. The Bible says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you, encount, uh, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much for uh, the role that difficult times, the role that trials and tribulations play in our lives. God, thank you for your wisdom. God, you know that we would never ask for these trials for ourselves, but you know what's best for us. I pray that you just help us to be submitted to your will. Help us today as we study this passage to know what you would have us to do when we face difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen. So James chapter 1 here, and, and I'll just give you a disclaimer. I wanted, I'll put it this way, every fiber of my being had to resist preaching all of James 1. But I also know you don't want to be here till 2 p.m., so I won't be preaching all of James 1. I say that to encourage you this week, all this week, spend this week reading James 1. If you need encouragement, if you need um, um, hope, if you need uh, just direction, this passage of the Bible is about as rich as any other passage you're going to find. I know they're all good, I know they're all excellent, but James 1 is one of these passages that every verse you read you think, man, you're either convicted or you encouraged, one or the other. There's no, there's no light, light material in James chapter 1. So I want to encourage you to read the whole passage, but we're going to focus just on a few verses this morning. And the first thing I want us to focus in out of this passage is this, that trials are the tools. Trials are tools in your life. Say, so what do you mean trials are tools? There are things that you need to grow in. There are things that you need to learn. There are things that you need to uh, mature in that there is no way you can do those things outside of trials and tribulations. You know, in the obvious example, let me make sure I'm turned on. All right, I, I just realized I saw my guys looking at me in the back, and I thought I, my mic was off, but I'm good. There are things, the, the obvious uh, example is this. When you think about a diamond, for a diamond, from, for a piece of coal or a piece of, 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 of um, right, coal to turn into a diamond, it, it, it requires an extended period of extreme pressure, right? To change from something worthless into something valuable, into something at times priceless, into something at times that's sought after above all else, it takes, and I want you to catch this phrase, an extended time of extreme pressure. How many of you want to sign up? If I had to sign up at the, la at the back of the church, sign up here for an extended time of extreme pressure. No, right? Yeah, like I'm not, I'm not doing it. In fact, best-selling books are often things that say how to relieve stress in your life, not how to add more stress, to turn yourself into a diamond. But here's the love of God. His love is so great that he would not want anything less than his best for us. And he understands that his best for us often requires some of the most difficult trials. I'll use myself as an, exa as an example. When I was uh, starting to be called as a pastor, I, so I'd been a youth pastor for 10 years, and God started to change my heart and give me a desire for senior pastoral ministry, to start being the pastor of a church. And I started to say, well, God, and you, don't judge me for this, but here, here was my prayer. God, I know, I kind of know how to preach, and I kind of know how to do all the church stuff, but I don't really know how to love people. 
right? And that sounds pretty rough. You're like, well, that's really great. I'm glad you're our pastor. You don't know that I love people. Exciting news. But this is back in 2015. I started praying, God, help me to love people the way that my dad loves people. That was really my prayer. I had three pastors in my life that taught me how to love people. One was right here, Pastor Tom. Uh, he, he, and the way he did that, when my dad passed away, I was in the candidate process to become the youth pastor here at the church. And then rather than asking me questions about my theology or, or my thought process or my uh, psychology or, well, not my psychology, my philosophy, that's the word I'm looking for. Rather than asking me questions right after he found out my dad died, he spent a couple weeks just pastoring me. That's all he did. He didn't care what, what uh, he wasn't trying to find information out. All he was trying to do is let me know that he loved me and that he cared about me and give me encouragement. So Pastor Tom was one of those guys. My dad was the second one of those people that I, I used to watch and think, I, I, I can remember asking my dad, how do you pretend to love people? And he looked shocked, like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I see how they treat you, and I see what they say to you, and I see how you treat them, and I know you have to be faking it. It has to be pretend, because I've seen how they treat you. You can't really love them. But he really did. I learned that through life, that he really did. The third person was my father-in-law. My father-in-law was so similar. My father-in-law could be so empathetic. In fact, we were there just a couple weeks ago. And, and a man in his church had lost a brother-in-law. And, and it, was, it was sad and it was unexpected. It was a, it was a tragic car accident. My father-in-law, you know, you would think, well, you know, this is someone, it's not even someone in your church. It's not someone that you, he didn't even know him really that well. He knew him personally, but not that well. But I can remember the tears, the genuine tears. And it wasn't because he was supposed to. It was because he really, truly loved the man in his church. He really, truly loved the people that God put in his life. And I remember when God started calling me to be a pastor, I said, well, God, time out. I deal with teenagers, and I can get away with being sarcastic and snarky all the time. When I become a pastor, I have to really love people, and you have to show me how to do that. Little did I know that what I would have to go through to learn to love people the way that God's called me to love people was the loss of my dad. And I can remember l realizing it extremely clearly. I remember having a conversation with my dad, and he asked me to do his funeral, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not doing your funeral. You're my dad. That will just be me standing on stage crying and people listening to it. That will not be a good funeral. That will not be a good sermon. He said, no, you're going to do it. And I said, well, why am I going to do it? And he said, it's the last lesson I have to teach you. And I thought, well, there's a better way for me to learn how to do a funeral than doing your funeral. But that's not what he was saying. He knew that I needed to know what it was like to lose somebody you love and able to, love, uh, to enable me to love those that are going through difficult times to know what was needed from me as a pastor. Because listen, I realized in that moment, I didn't need somebody to fix it. There, there, there's no fixing it. I didn't need somebody to say really smart words to me. I, I'd heard all the words. I'd read all the words. I knew all the things. I didn't need somebody to quote a bunch of passages to me or to pretend that everything was going to be okay. I just needed somebody to care. And that's what I learned in that moment that I had to go through the, one of the most painful experiences of my life because that was the tool that God needed to use to shape me into who he needed me to be. You say, well, this does not sound like a fun sermon. I'm sorry, it's not, but it should be a really a hopeful and exciting sermon to you to understand what God wants to do in your life. And so here in James chapter 1, we understand that trials are the tool. I want you to know this as well. They will come. It's not a maybe. It's not a maybe they're going to come or hopefully if we're lucky we won't have any trials. Here's what the Bible says in verse number 2. I think it's great how James says it. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various kinds of trials. He didn't say if. He didn't say perchance. 
He said, you are going to face trials. Job says it this way. If you look in Job, uh, and I'll read it to you, but Job 14.1 says this, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. All right, exciting sermon, right? Everybody's really hopeful and excited, ready to go home and have a great week. This is what he says. Life is going to be full of difficulty, full of turmoil, full of trials. They are going to come. But he goes on further. He doesn't say that they, they will come. He also says they're going to come in all kinds of ways. And, and th- if you, maybe, maybe you're in this situation today where it's not one big thing that's hitting you. It's a lot of little stresses, right? It's a lot of little things. It's a lot of tiny things. You know, I, I used to have a youth pastor that told me it's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like every little thing just adds more stress on top and more stress on top. And if you're built like me, here's my natural tendency. I just grip tighter on the things I can control, right? And so here's the way I picture it. I've got one thing, and I'm gripping it real tight. Well, I've got to add something else to it. This other stress is coming. I'm going to add that thing. And then eventually it becomes like this, this have, you ever, have you ever gone and bought a dozen helium balloons, right? And, and you get all the strings. At first they're all separate and good, but you grab them with one hand, and then you get to your car to try to put them in and trying to figure out which string you can let go of without losing all the balloons, it's like, it's, like a, it's like diffusing a bomb, right? You're like looking at the cord like, this, I think this is the one. I think I've got the right one. I've got to let go. How many of you have lost a full dozen balloons before? I have done that. Only me? I'm the only one that's lost a dozen balloons? All right, apparently I need more fine motor skills. That's what we're learning today. But the point is this. When you take those stresses and you take those difficulties and you keep absorbing them and grabbing them and holding them it's exactly what satan wants you to do now here's what the bible says cast your cares upon the lord for he cares for you don't don't hold on to the baggage that you're fighting with you're going to still face it it's still going to be difficult but we've got to recognize that that difficulty that we're fighting is christ's difficulty he's already fought that battle and he intends to win it for you But not if you hold on to the string. You've got to give it to him. And so here, there are going to be various kinds of difficulties. They're going to come from all kinds of angles. We mentioned that before, that you've got finances. You've got family. You've got um, work-related things. You've got uh, health-related things. And and Satan is not going to just attack you in one way. He's going to attack you at all sides. And that's what we're told here. James says, listen, you're going to face various kinds of trials. Last thing we need to understand is this. These trials should bring us a sense of pride, not in ourselves, but remembering who it is that we struggle for. Look with me at verse number 9 of James chapter 1. Listen to the way that James says this. He says, The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. All right, I want you to catch that again. The Christian, the brother, the believer who is in difficult circumstances or humble circumstances should glory in their high position. Here's what he's saying. It is a blessing from God to suffer for his sake. It's difficult, right? We don't think that way. We don't think we think blessings from God should come with dollar signs in front of them or they should come in the mail or they should come in some tangible way, but what the Bible tells us is that the difficulty that we can endure for him is a blessing from him. It's an opportunity to be greater than what we would be on our own. Because his trials and his testing are what's going to produce the maturity in us that we're called to have. 
And so here we have to understand that those should develop a sense of pride when we struggle. Now, I want you to think about this. When you have that mindset, the next time difficulty comes, if your initial reaction is God is giving me the opportunity to serve him, how does that change the outlook on the situation? Makes it a lot different, doesn't it? I can remember, and I'm not going to, this whole sermon won't be littered with my dad, but, but this is another example that I've got from him. I, on his deathbed, I can remember him saying, I, I asked him the question uh, two weeks before he passed away. I said, Dad, he had just gone to the doctor, and I said, Dad, what is, um, what do you, what's, a, what's a bullseye for you is the way I asked it. Or in other words, what's the best outcome you can imagine in this circumstance? And what I was asking him was, are you going to get better in a couple months? Are you... You know, how many years do you have left? That's what I was asking. What's your, your um, prognosis? What's the outcome of this sickness? Uh, and those of you who don't know, my dad had colon cancer. <coughs> and this was the third time he was fighting the same cancer. And he said, well, um, this was the answer. And it convicted me immediately. I, I felt, I, I almost wanted to hang up on him as soon as he said this. He said, as long as I finish what God has me to finish, that's a bullseye. I said, no, I'm not talking about that, Dad. Quit getting spiritual on me. Just answer the question I'm asking you. Are you going to be around for a few more years? And he said, listen, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know the best outcome in this situation is that I finish what God has for me to do here on earth. And he meant that. He meant it sincerely to the point where it made me mad. I was mad at him for being sincere about that because that's not what I wanted him to answer. I wanted him to tell me I'm going to get better. I'll be around for the next 10 years. You'll be able to call me every week. But that's not what God's plan was. But the reality was he meant it and he was sincere about it. And in that moment, I learned what God had called me to do. It wasn't that I had I didn't, I didn't have a, a list. It wasn't, John Brothers, here's your, here's your life. Here's the things you have to finish. It was, follow me in everything that I put in front of you. And, and here's, here's what I want you to understand. He could only have that perspective, understanding that that sickness, that that difficulty, that even death was an opportunity to be what God had called him to be was an opportunity to be greater than what he was going to be on his own, was an opportunity for him to share the love of Jesus Christ, was an opportunity for him to bring people to Christ. And through that, I, I still hear stories all the time. My sister told me a story about a lady that he had gone and ordered. It was some Christmas gift he had gone and ordered to, uh, from this lady at some store. And uh, like two years later, my sister goes back and picks up what he had ordered. And the lady was in tears remembering the conversation she had with my dad about Christ and about the hope that he had because he shared, well, I'm, I'm getting this gift and it's, it's probably one of the last Christmas gifts I'm going to buy for this person and this is what's happening in my life. And that lady two years later remembered the witness that my dad had given to her. He only, he only could, because listen, I can remember in those days thinking, dad, if I was in your shoes, I would be a rotten person to talk to. I would not be nice to people. I would not be encouraging to people. I would probably be questioning, God, why are you doing what you're doing in my life? Why aren't you allowing me to keep doing what I'm doing? But he had this perspective. God has a purpose in the things that I face, and his purpose is greater than my pain. And that's the, that's the reality we have to understand, that we've got to joy, take joy in that struggle. I want to read you Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 12. Here's what the Bible says. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted you, uh, the prophets, uh, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Listen, if it's people that are attacking you for your faith, if it's sin that you're struggling with, if it's financially that you're struggling, you've got to count that as joy because God's doing something in your life. So the first thing we understand is that trials are the tool. But I want you to also understand that endurance is the product. So the product that the tools of trials are going to produce is endurance in your life. And this doesn't mean that you're going to, it really does fit with Paul's example of running the race that's set before you. But it doesn't mean that you're just going to go and go and go and go and that you're the Energizer Bunny and nothing's ever going to be difficult for you and everything's just going to be easy. But this endurance has the idea of perseverance or continued faith or the idea that when I face trials, I can overcome that trial and continue to follow Christ. That's what endurance is. And so here we look at verse number three. three. The Bible says it this way. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the first thing we've got to understand is that our trials produce endurance. These trials are the testing of our faith. So how many of you were bad test takers in school? Had a really hard time? It could be like write your name and you're like, I don't remember how to spell it. What is wrong with me? Like I, I can, I've had moments like that. Um, but the reality is tests are there and they're built to be difficult to see where you stand. Does that make sense? Teachers test you not to torture you, although I do think I had some teachers that also enjoyed torturing me through the tests. But the real reason that the test is there, the real reason that the test has been constructed, the real reason for you to take that test is because it's intended to see where you stand. What do you know? How have you grown? Where's your maturity? (coughs) The tests in your life are the same way. The trials and tribulations in your life are built the same way. They should be an indicator to you where you're standing with Christ is. Where are you spiritually? Are you mature? Are you still a child? Are you still growing? Is there a need for improvement? Where do you stand as a Christian? Where do you stand spiritually? And so those tests are supposed to be difficult. They have to be difficult. I used to tell it to teenagers this way. Uh, you know, LeBron James is a great basketball player. But if you ever watch the things that he does to train to be a great basketball player, to give you an idea, this guy's 6'9", and he can do things with his feet that I've seen my daughter struggle to do at three feet tall. Again, if you've ever done a ladder drill, so, so playing football, playing basketball, you've got these, these lines that are a foot apart. And I've watched a video where LeBron James can do these ladder drills faster and more agilely and more effectively than guys that are half his size that are also pro athletes. You say, well, what does that matter? Here's the thing. Because of what LeBron wants to be, right? So, so there's argument that he's the greatest basketball player that's ever lived. Because of what he wants to be, he puts himself through difficult things. His training regimen is harder than most anybody else's that plays. What he does in the offseason, he doesn't go and goof off and play around. He loses 20 or 30 pounds and he works as hard as he can, not because he enjoys it, but because he knows what he's about to face. He knows what he wants to be. He knows what he wants to achieve. He knows where he wants to go. And so it's worth the trial. It's worth the test. It's worth the tribulation. If he just, uh, now listen, I coach basketball at the Y. Now, even within the Y, I've got 12 to 15 year olds, and I've got some 12 year olds that if they touch the floor, they're happy. Like, all right, good game. Woohoo, we did it. I got to touch the floor. That's all I needed to do. And I have some some 15 year olds that if they lose, there will be tears sometime that day. They do not want to lose that game. And the difference in those two is what do they value? 
The 12-year-old that doesn't really care and doesn't really want to be there, I'm saying run, and they're like, okay, I'm running. This is me running. In fact, Mariah is a very good example of that. Mariah, go chase your guy. What? Why? He's over there. Like, because he's going to score. Whereas Lily is in their face like, like, Dad, do you want me to punch them? If I punch them, they can't score. Do you want me to hit them? I'll tackle them right now. Whatever it takes, I'm going to win. But the difference is, what are they invested in? What are they, what, what is, is it more important for them to have fun in that minute? Or is it more important for them to grow and to be what they want to be? The difficulties that you face, if you just want to get through life, just, just don't expect any hard times, right? And, and when hard times come, just try to do the easiest way out. Just try to make the, the most comfortable path through your life. And then when God doesn't have a chance to use you, just understand that that's just the choice you made. That's the path that you've taken. But if you really want to be used by God, that's going to come with difficulty. That's going to come with hard times. That's going to come with trials. That's going to come with tribulations. Because those are the things that allow you to be the witness that God's called you to be. So the question becomes this. What are we willing to do to be what he's called us to be? Are we willing to endure those things? Or is every trial, every difficulty going to cause us to turn away from him? If we are not willing to face the difficulty, if we're not willing to stand by him through the difficulty, we're still going to face the difficulty, but he's not going to have the opportunity to grow us and use us the way that he wants to. You've got to make that choice. And so here we understand that endurance is the product. Endurance brings the blessing of God. We see that here in verse number 12. Here's what the Bible says. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here's what he says. God's blessing falls on those who persevere, who endure. When you go through trials and continue to love God, that's where God's blessing falls on your life. Now, some of you heard me say, if I endure, God's going to make me a millionaire. Not what it says. If I endure, I'm going to get everything that I want. My health problems are going to go away and everything's going to go exactly the way I want it to go. It's not what I said. But if you endure and you lean on Christ, no matter what difficulty you face, you'll be able to face it with joy and with hope and with understanding that this is what God's plan is. And you can face it with a genuine excitement that the world is going to think you're crazy for, right? There's no reason to have a cancer diagnosis cause joy in your life other than the fact that you know that God's going to work through it and God's going to allow you to do things through it that you couldn't do otherwise. And the way that we understand that is by knowing how much God truly loves us. If we have a Savior that's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-everywhere, uh, and He loves us, we have to understand that if we've got to go through hard times, it's because there was no other way to accomplish what He wanted to accomplish. Christ understood that. In Gethsemane, He said this, He said, If it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But if not, I'll go. Here's what He said. God I really want you to think about this, Father. If you can think of a plan B, I would really like a plan B right now. But I know that you love me. And if this is the only way, I know that this is what you have to do. That's what we've got to see as Christians. We've got to understand this in the same way that Christ did. If God is facing, putting difficulty into your life or allowing difficulty in your life, if you're facing trials that feel like they're un insurmountable, you've got to understand that a loving God would only let you face those if they were the only way to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life. 
And that should be encouraging. Because when we face those trials, we know he's got a plan and he's got a purpose for those trials. And we've just got to let him do it. Endurance is the product. I want you to understand endurance is only achieved when we look back, when we learn to look to God in times of struggle. Now here's why endurance is kind of a neat thing. The first time, uh, and it's kind of like anything else, the first time you run a mile, you think you might die, right? I, have anybody ever been there? You, you, there's pain in your ribs that you've never felt before. I had a kid last night, uh, yesterday at the basketball game say, I have pain right here. I think I broke a rib. I said, no, I think you need to breathe. I think you need to sit down for a minute. You'll be all right. But the first time you run a mile, you think there is no chance I'll ever run two miles. And the first time you run two miles, you're thinking, gosh, if I had to run another half mile, I might not be able to do it. If my life depended on it, I may not be able to run this, this last mile. Until eventually, you keep going and keep building and keep building, and your endurance starts to build up, and your cardiovascular strength starts to build up. And before you know it, looking back at a mile, you think, man, that was so easy. Why was that so hard for me? I want you to understand, God intends the same thing in your life. When you go through hard things in your life, what it does is prove to you that God has it under control. And when you get to the other side and look back and say, I can't, I can't remember why I thought that was so hard. I can't remember why I thought that was so difficult. Because God's doing way bigger things in my life now. I've seen God tackle way bigger problems in my life now. I've seen God overcome so many things in my life. Why did I think that was so hard? because you hadn't built up endurance yet. Here's what God's going to do in your life. When you face something and lean on him and allow him to see you through it, the next time you face something, a light bulb's going to go off and you're going to say, last time God saw me through it, and he's going to do it again. And then eventually you'll get to the point where you're going against stuff that you say, God, I do not see any logical way that you could beat this, but you've always won in the past, so I'm going to trust that you're going to beat this too. You want to know how you get to the end of your life? You get to a cancer diagnosis. You get to a difficult situation that there seems to be no light at the end of this tunnel and still have hope and still have joy because you can look back and say, God, you've always been faithful. You've done it before. You kept doing it when I didn't deserve it, when I didn't believe you, when I didn't even see it in my life. You took care of me before. and know you will again. That's what we've got to get to. And that's endurance. That's what he's trying to build. You say, well, what is the point? We just are here on earth to face hard times so that we can face more hard times, right? It sounds like a really fun cycle. It sounds like a really good ride to get on. Like that, that's my, that might go into Disney soon. The, the, the tribulation cycle, maybe. No, no, probably not. <laughs> they probably shouldn't do that. But that's not where it ends. That's not the final destination because those tools are going to produce endurance, but that endurance is going to eventually lead to maturity. Maturity is the result of endurance having its perfect work in you. That's what the Bible says. Here's how he says it. He goes into verse number four. Here's what the Bible says. He says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to understand this first. Endurance has a purpose. There is a purpose for you going through things. This cycle is not in vain. This cycle of, of facing difficult times and seeing God work through those times is not just for his entertainment. He's not just watching you go through it and testing to see how far he can take you. You're not just a guinea pig to see how much faith God can build into somebody. In fact, you look back in Job. Job is the, the best record of somebody facing trials and God allowing those trials to come into his life. 
And even in Job's life, it wasn't just so God could see how faithful he was. It was because God had a plan for Job's life, and he was going to work through it. Let me tell you something. The same thing is true for you. God is going to build endurance in you because it's going to result in maturity in your life. Say, well, who cares about maturity? What's the point of maturity? Let's look at why. Actually, let's look at what maturity is first. The intended result is maturity, and he says it three different ways here. First thing he says is this, that you may be perfect. Now, here's the thing. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We will never get perfect until we're in heaven. All right, are we all clear on that? Perfect here does not mean without any problems, without any mistakes, without any flaws. What perfect means here is this. I'm going to read you uh, the definition of the Greek word that we get here. It says, brought to your end, finished, full-grown, adult, of full age. So that's the first idea here. That when endurance does its work in your life, you're going to be a full-grown adult in Christ. Now, Paul talks about it this way. He says, as mature believers, we should want meat. We wouldn't, shouldn't be drinking milk forever. I talked about this just a few weeks ago. That maturity in our lives is important if we're going to share the gospel of Christ. Because if we're not changed from who we used to be, how can we encourage anybody to grow in Christ if we've never grown in Christ? So here's what he says. The first thing he says is that you're going to be full grown. The second word he uses here is complete. Complete is this idea. It's complete in all its parts. In no part wanting or unsound. Entire, whole. <coughs> I want you to understand something. When endurance works in your life, there will be no aspect of your life that's found wanting. So well, what do you mean by that? Does that mean I'm going to be rich? Does that mean I'm going to have everything I want? No, here's what it means. The next time you face a trial, you'll have all the tools you need to face it. The next time you face a difficulty, the next time God gives you an opportunity to be a witness, you will be fully equipped to be that witness. I've seen this played out in my own life. There were things that I struggled with as a teenager that I said, God, why are you allowing me to struggle with this? Why are you allowing me to face this? Why do I have to go through this? And then 30, uh, well, not 30, I'm not that old. 20 years later, I, I got to do better math. 20 years later, I have a teenager walk into my office and say, I'm struggling with this and this and this. And God puts a light bulb off of my head. That's why you had to do it, so you could show them that they don't have to keep doing it. I can remember kids coming into my office and saying, how are you a pastor with all the dumb stuff you've done? I said, good question. I wish I knew the answer, too. But here's the answer. God built into me, and God built into me, and God changed me, and God encouraged me, and God grew me. And through endurance, God gave me maturity to be able to help other people grow into maturity. That's it. That's the cycle that he wants from us. We've talked a lot about in the last couple months that disciples make disciples, that, fisher, uh, that, that followers are supposed to fish. And here's the reality of it. If we are going to be disciples, if we're going to make disciples, it has to be a result of God's work in our lives. We'll talk about that just a little bit more in a minute. The third word he uses here is this, lacking in nothing. So I want you to understand it literally means nothing left out or left behind. So he he. he this is one phrase that he puts together, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying that you will have every part, it will be fully completed, it will be fully mature, and you will be lacking nothing to do his will if you'll allow endurance to have its work in your life. Now let's look at the converse of that. If I choose to face difficulty and to face trials on my own, in my own way, and, and I want to give you an example of that. There were two characters in the Bible that faced Almost an ident identical test. Uh, one was named Judas, and one was named Peter. And at the end of Christ's life, 
Christ needed friends around him. He needed people that loved him. He needed people that supported him. And both of these men betrayed him in different ways. You all know Judas came and kissed him on the cheek. He betrayed him, and he showed the, the, the Roman soldiers who to take. And then Peter was given an opportunity to stand up for his friend in the darkest moment of his life, and he chose to betray him instead. He chose to deny him. Now, both of those sins were pretty big deals. Both of those sins were pretty heavy sins. But both of those sins were covered by the grace of God. And the difference in those two sins was this, the reaction. Peter immediately knew he needed God. He went out and wept. And the moment that Christ came back out of the, out of the grave and he, he arose again, Peter went to him and said, how do I make it right? right? That, that's, that's in our vernacular. He basically goes to Christ and he says, how do I fix this problem that I've made? Do you love me? And Jesus says, yes. And, and eventually, we, we know the story. Peter goes on. And he, he's used it the day of Pentecost, and thousands are saved. And throughout the rest of his ministry, Peter is used over and over again until ultimately Peter gives his life for Christ in a literal way. He dies to serve Christ, even though he betrayed him in his darkest hour. Judas did the exact same thing. And I want you to understand the difference in Judas and Peter is after Judas betrayed him, Judas tried to fix it himself. He internalized it. He was going through a difficult time. He messed up. And rather than turning to Christ and turning to God and saying, I've messed up. Help me fix this. He said, how can I make this better? And the end result was that he took his own life. The difference in the two was that Peter knew that he had to go to God. And that Judas thought he could fix it himself. Let me tell you something. You're going to face trials. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to face depression and frustration and anxiety and all these things. But the outcome in your life is going to be determined by this. Are you going to internalize it, or are you going to give it to Christ? And the difference makes all the difference in the world. That's the most important decision you can make in your life, is who am I going to lean on? Who am I going to put my faith in? He wants to make you who he's made you to be. Third thing is this, letter C. When we are spiritually mature, I want you to catch this. We are left on earth to be a little preview or taste of heaven to those around us. I don't have long, but I want to spend just a minute telling you about this uh, chapter Chapter 1, verse 18, James 1, 18, the Bible says this, in the exercise of his will, this is talking about God, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I was reading this passage, and I've preached this passage probably 50 times in the past, and I've always skipped verse 18 because I thought, I do not really know what he means that we're the first fruits. I don't really know how to dig into this. I don't really know how to apply this, so I'll do it some other time. But God really laid it on my heart this time, and I kept reading it and thinking, what does this mean? Because the idea of first fruits is where we get the idea of tithe. And, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, actually. But tithe is this, that I'm giving the first increase of what God's given me back to God. Now, here's why. If you've ever bought a house before, you had to give something called earnest money. Anybody ever heard of earnest money? When you, when you make an offer, you have to give, whether it's 10%, 5%, or, or a set amount, you give money to say, I am earnest or serious about buying this house. All right, everybody following along? That's the idea of the first fruits. The first fruits is the earnest money that God is giving. So here's, what, here's how it plays out in tithe. The reality of what tithe is supposed to be is that I'm giving you the first portion of what I've made to tell you and, and to promise to you that the rest of what I make will be used to honor you. That's what it is. It's not, it's not that God needs your 10% to make the church run. It's not so we can keep the lights on or pay the bills. Because God's got ways to do those things. But he wants you to dedicate to him that I'm giving a portion of my money to show you that everything is going to be yours. That's what he says. That's, that's what the first fruits are. That's what, that's what tithe's all about. That's why we do it. 
But the thing that he says here is that we are of the first fruits of all of his new creation, is what he's talking about here. So his new creation is heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, the world to come when we are in glorified and perfected bodies. So here's what he says. We are the sample for earth to taste so that someday they'll want to go to heaven. Now time out. How many of you feel like that describes your life? Not me very often, right? Like I'm just a little piece of heaven. No, probably not. <laughs> like that's not a phrase that I expect people to describe me as. But here's the thing. It should be. It should be. You say, well, how does this even tie together? When people watch you go through the most difficult things on this earth and still have joy. When people see you go through the most difficult things they've ever seen on this earth and you still have joy, it tells them without any shadow of a doubt that there's got to be something more to life than just money and houses and land and stuff. You are the first fruits. As Christians, mature believers, we are the earnest money. We are the down payment. We are the promise to the world around us that heaven is better. We've got to be a little sample of what God has in store. You say, how do I get there? Enduring trials, growing in maturity. You've got to face difficult times. You know what? The best influence you can have on people is when they see your difficulty and know that you still love Christ. Listen, we can be thankful for our trials, not because they're fun, not because they make us rich, not because they're the most exciting things that we face, but here's our answer today. We can be thankful for our trials by remembering that trials are a tool that will produce endurance, which will result in our maturity. Want to know how we can be thankful for hard times? Know that they have a purpose. Know that God's working through them, and he has a plan for them. So I'll stand as the musicians come.